0: Go ahead and make your way back. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. I'm going to jump in. I'm also going to read a passage with you. Um, As we work through our series on the book of John, we find ourselves at the end of the 13th chapter today, the series called Hero, real fun passage today. I'm going to start in verse 21, and I'm going to read this to you. This is the word of the Lord for us today. You could read along in your Bible if you have one in front of you. If you didn't bring a Bible or you don't use a device that has a Bible on it, we'll have it up on the screen for you as well. But this is what God says to us. Chapter 13, verse 21. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel he gave it to Judas the son of Sim of Simon Iscariot then after he had taken the morsel satan entered into him jesus said to him what you're going to do do quickly now no one at the table knew why he said this to him some thought that because judas had the money bag jesus was telling him buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor so after receiving the morsel of bread he immediately went out and it was night verse 31 When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, just as I loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Okay, I want you to get a mental image of somebody in your life right now. Somebody, or some people. It could be multiple people, but someone who has wronged you, hurt you. I want you to picture their face. Think of their name. I want you to consider what they've done their crime against you, how they were aggressive against you. I want you to consider it, right? Don't cuss them out in your heart, just get their face, right? (laughs) I'm evoking all these new emotions in you. How bad does someone have to be to lose your love? It's a big question I'd like to look at today, how bad? Can someone do something so bad that you revoke love and cut them off? Or when you forgive someone, do you have to be friends? Do you have to go right back to normal? whatever normal was, right? Because we're a church full of fallen people that misbehave and hurt each other, these questions are not so hypothetical. Because the church on earth, all, not just legacy, all of God's church, we can be a bit of a herd, a herd of misbehavers, of losers, really, acting against each other, and hurting each other. And when we are on the receiving end of somebody else's hurt, then it can be a little bit difficult for us to kind of decipher what forgiveness looks like. How quick do we forgive? How deep do we forgive, right? Maybe you're tired of forgiving someone. They keep repenting, they keep doing though. Maybe they're not working as hard as you want them to work when it comes to forgiveness. Maybe you don't want to get hurt anymore. Now, on top of these hard questions and having to kind of look deep in our soul at how we forgive and why we forgive, I often see people mishandle words like repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. I see them put them in the wrong order. I see them get all jumbled up and used kind of interchangeably. And when you forgive someone, when you do it, how fast do you do it? What does that look like? Do you reconcile? Do you go right back to normal? Are you required to trust them all over again? I will say just as a punchline, just to get it out there, sometimes you do and you should go back to normal and sometimes you don't. I want you to consider things like rape, sexual abuse, physical abuse, sometimes normal won't be had. Sometimes there's not a normal to go back to, even though forgiveness is upon us as God's people as those who belong to God, even though forgiveness is before us. Sometimes normal, maybe not on this planet, maybe not in this lifetime, but maybe so. You see, in this upper room, in these upper room moments, we need to remember that there are two guys eating with Jesus that are about to hurt Jesus. Two, not one. Now Judas is about to betray him to death, but make no mistake, Peter, is about to deny him out loud in high death for all to see that's about to happen right and Jesus knows that both of these things are going to happen this isn't the moment that we see in Leonardo da Vinci's work the last supper Christian were we able to get that there it is okay this is what we've grown up seeing as the last supper this upper room moment okay this is, not the, this is not really representative of what happened. They all look like they have some master's degree, don't they? None of them look like their feet stink. They've all got designer sandals on, right? It looks like they're in some sort of a hotel banquet room. Doubt that was the case, right? Table, say there's like a nice tablecloth. Look how it's knotted in the corner, like, <laughs> like, like what we would do today at a fancy banquet. All the bread and all the place settings are perfectly lined out. Everyone's got the perfect amount of product in. You know what my favorite part is? They all have halos. Halos. Come on. Not really. I mean, that's just not the case. I want you to remember that they all just fought it out over who was the bestest. They all just had that argument. They they put their, their argument why they're at the top of the BCS rankings and not everybody else. That just happened. It just happened. Then Jesus humbly stoops and lowers himself to wash their feet, making them radically uncomfortable, but showing them what grace looks like. We looked at that last week. And then he says, this is how you serve each other. It's about to get more uncomfortable than that, though. Because now he's saying he's about to go somewhere that they can't follow. That's never been the case before. Typically, in the Gospels, Jesus gets up and he goes somewhere. Team Jesus gets up and they follow him, right? I mean, occasionally he'll find himself up on a mountain by himself in solitude. That, that happens sometimes, but most of the time they're with him. And now he's saying, I'm going somewhere, not coming back, and you won't be able to find me. You can't come with. Are you getting the picture? Because that picture that you just saw is not the picture, right? Their feet were still wet from being washed. Their feelings were still hurt from ribbing each other. And now they're convicted of their competitiveness and their lack of grace for each other. And now Jesus is saying he's leaving and he's not coming back and they can't go with. Oh, and now there's people that are going to hurt him. It's pretty awkward in there. There's a bit of a cringe factor in this passage that I don't want to let go of. I think it's going to be helpful for you and me. You see, if that upper room, if that upper room, the church in the upper room was full of losers and full of misfits and those who will do damage to each other and hurt each other, then make no mistake, the church in this room will do the same thing. We don't have any halos on either. (laughs) We're no different. And I think to add a layer of complication to this, we have pain and damage that begets pain and damage. Things have been done to us that kind of leak through us onto others, as they say, hurt people hurt people. I think that's the case. I think sometimes something hits us young in life, we carry it through life, we get into tight proximity and start to do things called community. And we start to blend in with people around us. And then it just kind of drips out of us and we end up hurting people very similarly to how we were hurt. Here's some statistics from the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Right now in America, 20 people per minute are physically abused by someone that they are close to or maybe are in a love relationship with, whether it's parent or spouse, right? 20 people per minute, 20 people per minute. Right now, 33% of all women experience physical violence with someone that loves them around them. That's one out of three. It's one out of four for men, one out of four, right? And in the time it took me to just give you those statistics, 20 more people were just physically abused. It's fascinating when you think about it. These things will shape you over time, won't they? One out of six women right now will experience at least an attempted sexual assault. One out of six. We could do the math in this room if we felt like it. That's a lot. Some of you already know because it's already happened to you. Sometimes things hit us that are not insignificant and they inform the way that we handle others around us, and we don't even know it. See, hurt people sometimes can hurt people. Horrid things have happened to some of us, and no doubt, it's got an effect on some of our lives even today. Certainly, you've seen this occur. If you've done community well enough, certainly, you've been hurt by somebody in a not so insignificant way, but whenever you see it, you think to yourself, man, I wonder if that person was hurt. It seems like that person must have been hurt. They must have gone through some sort of a damaged moment in their life to have done something like that to me and really not even seen it. Not only that, but if you've done community well, you've also banged around and done some life with the repeat offender. The person that harms you does damage and then quickly comes back and says, I'm sorry. They're really fast to fall on the sword. They're very quick to say, I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? I apologize. I apologize. But as quick as they say it, they seem to just step on you more and more. You've seen that too, right? You've wondered what to do with that. You ask yourself, are they really sorry? I mean, come on. They can't be really sorry or they'd quit doing it. When is enough enough? And how quick are we supposed to forgive? And what if they're not even sorry that they hurt you? These are the gritty questions. These are gritty questions. But Jesus is so comprehensive here and so brilliant in his kind care of us that he takes the time to answer in just two verses. He answers all of these gritty questions, as complicated as they may seem. He says this in verse 34. A new commandment, an underlying new, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. Here's me if I'm in this picture, if I'm in this upper room moment. I'm raising my hand, right? Yep. Jesus, wait. I hate to make this moment more awkward than it already is, but that's not a new commandment. It's just not that new. It's as old as Moses, actually, specifically. I mean... Factually, I mean, it's, God's always told us to treat each other with love. He says this in Leviticus 19, because I would have had this ready for him, because I'm so smart, right? You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's not so new, Jesus. But Jesus means something specific when he says new here, right? I'm not going to give you the Greek words, but there are two Greek words for new, we understand new to be new, but there's really a nuance to the word new. And you want to know that for this. There is new that's a quantitative newness, something that didn't exist, and now it exists, right? I just told a class I taught that yesterday, me and my family, we drove to South Carolina to pick up our first family dog, right? We needed more drama, didn't know where to get it, so now we have it. We have a puppy, right? Pooping on something right now that probably shouldn't be pooping on. Now, a week ago, no dog. Had no dog, had no cute little crate, had no toys all over the place, had no big bowl of dog food, nothing. It's a quantitative newness. We have something now that we didn't have then, but there is a qualitative newness as well. That's what Jesus is speaking about here. A qualitative newness is where you take something that actually already existed, but it gets a massive facelift. It's informed by something totally different, right? Example, back in the 90s, Early 90s, when I was racing around town in my old Ford Escort wagon. It was cherry red, because that's the only color you should be driving an Escort in, right? I mean, it's a super cool car, super cool color. So I'm going around, and I remember how proud I was to put that leather bra on the front of my hood. That's back when everyone was doing that, right? Not because you didn't want your hood chipped, because you wanted to soup up your car. Put a black bra on the front of it, and it just looks a little bit cooler, So I remember going to work and going to school, telling everyone I got a new front end on my car. But it's not a new front end. It's just a refresh of something. It's just a remix. Jesus in this passage is talking about a qualitative newness. He's basically saying, guys, I'm going to remix an old truth. I'm going to refresh it. And it will be informed by what's about to happen, which is the cross. The cross will make this new. That's what's happening right here. The cross will redefine what love really means. Love will never be the same again, ever. You see, when we're born, we see love the way the world defines it. It leaks in and kind of informs and shapes how we see love. Love ends up being a feeling, right? We develop it, this feeling. We fall in it. We fall out of it. It's not like an affection, real gut feeling we have for someone else, but that love can be lost depending on the other party, depending on the object of your love. Friends can be mean. Spouses can cheat. Love can leak. And that's how we've always grown to know what love really is, right? So the world's definition of love is, is I will give you a payment as long as there's a repayment coming back. I will give you, but you must give me. There's a reciprocation in it all. That's how how I grew up to understand it. It's a feeling that can subside. It's a feeling that can be inflamed. I will pay out until you can't meet my deposit. Then I will revoke my payment. In fact, I might be willing to lend you a little payment in the hopes that there will be a payback coming later on. But if there isn't, then I'm out. This is why romantic movies that show like an undying or an unrelenting or an unconditional love, that's why they're so attractive to us, but yet at the same time, it feels so out of touch, doesn't it? We we watch them and watch them on Valentine's Day or date night, and and it's fun. It's unique. But we all know it's just a little unrealistic. It's also why marriages crack under this type of a leaking transaction that we make back and forth friendships break under this too. So Jesus enters our world as an act of love. And then he shows with his life, death and life how it ought to be redefined for you and me. It's now new. It's new. Now love is no longer a feeling. It's an action. An action that goes beyond falling into it and falling out of it. It's a it's a real action. Love is no longer a transaction, but it's a gift. does not require a repayment. doesn't require any kind of reciprocation. Now love walks across the room to us, even if we don't go across the room to him. Love comes across the street to us, even if we don't want him to, even if we just spit on him, even if we murder him with our own hands. Now love will even wash the feet of losers, betrayers, and failures. Like Peter, Judas, you, and me. You see, this love that Jesus informs, this new love, is different than what we thought. It's new. It's new. And we are called to receive it, and then we are called to give it. You see, last week we looked at Jesus teaching his disciples that they must serve each other as he served And now he's saying that we must love each other as he loved. He's spending a lot of time in the upper room teaching us how to handle each other. Why? Look around. Look to your left and look to your right. Because there are a billion ways, over a billion ways in which we can hurt each other. And we invent new ways whenever we get the chance to do it. Because it's a good teaching for us. Think about it in their case. In their case, this upper room that we threw up there just a little bit ago, right? How long do you think it took for them after this? Jesus has died, he's risen, and he's left again. How long do you think it took for them to start fighting each other and arguing again and cussing each other out in their heart, of course? Because you know it'd never come out of their mouth, right? Because they're disciples. How long do you think that took? Like five minutes? Probably, probably. I think we have this image that they all gelled and had this beautiful chemistry, that they never collided, they never hurt each other, they never betrayed each other. Doubt that. I mean, we know that Judas ends up taking his own life. That we know. What if he didn't? What if he hadn't have done that? And two weeks later, Peter bumps into him at Kroger. How do you think that goes down? Remember, he just tried to kill Malchus with a sword and only came up with an ear out of the whole thing. Because he's not a swordsman. How do you think that would have gone? I think it would have been a brawl. What about, what about Peter trying to lead? All right, guys, this is the way things need to go down, right? To have Matthew and, and maybe John go, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, I've made some mistakes, and I remember that fateful day. But I wasn't, like, straight up denying Jesus. I think I want to recount. Who puts you in charge? You don't think there was a little bit of that going on? I think There was. You see, we're the same today. We're engineered to collide with each other, but the gospel is engineered to help us handle that. And Jesus leaves us with this new commandment. It's a cross-informed love. It's a cross-shaped love because he came himself to be mishandled even by his own tight gang. He was injured by Peter in his denial. He was injured by Judas in his total betrayal. Yet he loved and cared for both. He laid down his life for people that would do even worse than that. This is why we see in Romans 5 where Paul says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's so true. And when we love each other, according to that same stamp, that same template, when we love each other, it is to look like this, and the world should be mystified, not bored but it should be mystified. Right now, 83 to 84% of Knoxville is sleeping or raking leaves or just chilling. I wonder what love they see out of the church. Not just legacy, but any church. I think it probably will be on one of two ends. I think some of them might say, well, of course they love each other because they're all clean. Just a bunch of clean people in a clean church building um, being preached a clean message by a clean pastor. They probably never even heard each other because they're all so perfect. All the way to, oh, no, 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 no. I know how the church handles itself. (laughs) They're no better than me. They're dirty people doing dirty things to each other. And they have a dirty God that lets it all happen. I think you'll find both, actually. You see, for you and me, typically, our version of love is wrapped up in our felt needs, oftentimes selfish. Our felt needs. And when we love, that love is driven and defined by what we get back. What can I get back? You see, we have these needs built into us. We're we're all designed and engineered to want love, to have love, to be loved, to belong to somebody, We're handcrafted for this. But when our hunger finds that love in people, first and foremost, we will gauge our investment on how we should love them based on the return that we get from them. That's how we do it. When we want to find that love in other people, we will, like a throttle, choke back or choke forward on how much love we give them depending on what they give us back. And if we get failure and betrayal instead of love, well, then we cut them off we'll cut them off. I'm gonna look at a passage just to kind of maybe nail this home in 1 Corinthians 13. If we look at the first few verses, yes, it is the typical love passage. And you will hear this in many a wedding ceremony, engraved on many a wedding gift, right? I'm not saying if you did this in your wedding, it's wrong. Congratulations, you're married, don't worry about it, right? But this wasn't written to a cute young couple, right? This is Paul's admonition to a church full of losers that didn't know how to behave around each other or before a lost world, so he has to teach them the alphabets of love. That's what it's really there for, okay? Again, you want to put it in your wedding, go for it. I would never throw a flag. It says this, verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We see the word nothing there a lot, don't we, right? You see, if we stop here, we see real quickly, if we just stop there, we see real quickly that service and activity devoid of the backbone of love, it is what? Nothing, as he says repeatedly, and annoying, like a gong or a clinging cymbal, annoying. You know, I love my wife. I know she's in here somewhere, right? But I love my wife. What I don't love is the alarm setting she has on her cell phone. She runs a tight ship, man. I mean, we, the, the trash gets taken out when it needs to get taken out. People are taking their vitamins when they need to be taken. Stuff is done when it needs, she runs a really tight ship. Right? And, and how she does that oftentimes is an alarm setting on her phone. Oh. I've threatened many times. I'm going to change that. I'm going to change the ringer. It's the ringer. It just drives, it's just so annoying, like a clanging cymbal in my ear all the time. A noisy gong, right? Paul says without love, cross-shaped love, cross-informed love that Jesus showed us, the new commandment, without that, You just try to serve people. You're wasting your time, he says, and you're annoying. That's what it says. That's if you stop there. But if you don't, and you go into verse four, he goes on to give the alphabet. He's spelling it out. He says this, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. So what Paul is saying is when our felt needs invade and bring their selfish demands, we end up corrupting love, not enacting it. We blow it up. Have you ever thought about this? Love is patient and kind. Why? Why? If it's cross-informed, we know that love is patient and kind because Jesus was long-suffering. And he's patient with you. And he's patient with me. And he's kind to us. That's why it's patient and kind. If, if love shows no envy or boasting, what does that mean? It's because Jesus didn't envy or boast, which would mean he would have to elevate himself to push us down. But he didn't do that, did he? He lowered himself to push us up. That's why it says that love is not arrogant or rude. Why? Because love is not arrogant or rude because Jesus never looked down his nose at your sins. He understood the temptation behind your sins. He sympathized with them, even though he was perfect among those sins. He was sympathized with them. That's what makes him such a great high priest. That's why that's in the Bible. Love does not insist on its own way. Why? Because he's in the final garden of his life and he says, Lord, not my will, but yours. Did not insist his own way. Love is not irritable or resentful. Why? Because Jesus does not need you and me to give him things to make him feel satisfied. Therefore, when we don't give those to him, he doesn't resist us. He's not not, uh, suffering for that. He's not resentful. He's not irritated at you. He is satisfied in his Father. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing. Why? Because he's about to pay for it. He's about to pay for it with his life. You see, love bears all, believes all, hopes all, endures all, because Jesus does all of these things for us while he offers himself for the unlovely. And that's you and me. We are the unlovely. See, 1 Corinthians, it describes the gospel and it spells out what cross informed love looks like. That's why it's in the Bible. It's not just for cute young couples. It's for miserably loser-filled, aggressive, mistake-prone, misshapen, misbehaving people. That's why it's in there. See, we're Judas. We're Peter. And not only does he wash our feet, he lays down his life to wash our soul. He washes all of us. We are the recipients of this new commandment, this new love. We get it before we walk it out, which is kind of the main point of this. The only way that you're ever going to love others is to be loved. The only way you will be able to love others with this cross-formed love is to be loved, to be loved first, right? If you don't love from a place of being captured in God's love, you will need those around you to return the favor so that you can be satisfied. And yes, they will fail you, and yes, you will be tempted to cut them off. If we don't love from this place of being loved, then we'll need people to not betray us and not fail us and not hurt us so that we could try to work out this new commandment thing. But Jesus would not require the objects of his love to be perfect with him. That's just something we do. That's when love doesn't look so lovely anymore. But when you are confident and resolved that God loves you, and hear me now, he likes you too. When you are confident and resolved that God does not just love you, but like you, you will stop hungering and draining those around you for that felt need. You'll stop doing that. You will be free to love without strings attached to it, ready to pull it back at any moment if you don't get what you really want. You see, this is super important for us as a church because again, look left and look right. Look around, right? There are failures, betrayers, Losers, herders, they're not going to understand you, they're going to wrong you, they're not going to invite you, they're going to say something odd, they're not going to explain it, they're not going to return your text, that's all going to happen, and you were worse, and you were worse. That's why love says, I will sacrifice for you anyway. New love, the new commandment. I will sacrifice for you anyway, even though you hurt me. That's what love says. I will cover the distance between me and you, even though you will stab me in the back. I will work hard, love says, even if you betray me. This is new. This is not the world's love. This is something radically different than what anyone had ever seen before. There wasn't a cross at this time to inform what love ought to look like, but now with the cross we see exactly what love is supposed to look like so if I were to take this teaching and press it into some sort of application for us as a church today right what about when people keep failing you and betraying you you what about that does love mean going right back to some form of normal and automatically being friends with them Does this commandment require that everything go right back to the way they used to be? You see, there's a difference between reconciliation and forgiveness. And if you get this mixed up, it will cause a great deal of havoc in your life. It will. So listen, listen careful here. Listening well here will save you an email to me. Because even if I do a good job of explaining this, you still may have questions, okay? But forgiveness is your heart's attitude before God and your resolve to not hold a vindictive and angry demand over someone's life. This is forgiveness. I just want to talk about forgiveness just for a minute, okay? Now listen, whenever he says a new commandment, which is to love each other, there's many ways that we can do this. I'm picking forgiveness. I'm picking that because there's two losers in this room that are about to hurt him. I think it's probably timely. I think it's a good time to talk about that. So forgiveness is our heart's attitude before God, to resolve, not to hold a vindictive or angry demand over someone's life. Forgiveness is releasing them from that level of vengeance. It's the open hand of our soul, releasing, letting go. And this takes a ton of ongoing work, doesn't it? I mean, isn't this just hard? Isn't there just a constant return to it? I mean, if you've sustained significant damage someone has really hurt you, you can count on forgiveness not being a quick prayer, but more like a saga, like a long journey. Because pain, it kind of circles back, doesn't it? Don't you wake up and you still find some hurt there? You have to reapply that forgiveness and reapply that forgiveness. This is normal. That's normal. If that's happening to you, there's nothing wrong with you. That's just normal. If you, if you ever think in your mind, yeah, yeah, I've already forgiven that person for that thing that they did at that time. But yeah, every time you see them walk in the room, you want to throat punch them. You might need to work on your forgiveness a little bit. You've obviously not worked through it. If you've forgiven someone, yet you can't stand to be in the same room with them. You'd never go and have a cup of coffee with them. Then you've not really forgiven them. You might have prayed about that and had the word forgiveness in the prayer, which is a good first step, but it's the first step to a journey that has a lot of steps. It takes a while. Also, on top of that, true forgiveness only occurs where there is true repentance. True forgiveness only occurs where there is true repentance. If someone has hurt you and they don't even know about it, don't think that you're going to have an easy time forgiving them. That's not going to happen. I mean, if someone really hurts you, the most loving thing you can do is bring it to their attention and implore them to repent. That's, that's work you've got to do. You've got to bring it to their attention. It says this in Proverbs 19.11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. But Luke, that makes it sound like overlooking an offense is not bringing it to their attention. Uh, listen, I agree with the Bible. I think there is a time to slow it down and overlook an offense, right? An offense like, wow, that just came out of my wife's mouth. But she hasn't slept in like two days. And I was kind of asking for it. You know what I'm saying? So something came out of her, but it's not really her. It's not like, like this pervasive sin that just comes. It's, just, it's something that I'm like, ah, okay. I could overlook that. I could expect that. There are some some offenses that we can overlook, right? But sometimes you can't. Sometimes there's an offense you cannot overlook, right? Overlooking, it only works when you're able to overlook. That's the trick. If you can't overlook it, then you can't overlook it. And when it lingers, you need to handle that in a biblical way, which is to bring it to them. Because remember, that sin against you, it's not against you first, it's against God first. Then it's against you. It's bigger than just about you. It's bigger than that. It's not love to let them walk out this hurtful pattern just because you want to avoid the work and you want to avoid the discomfort, that's selfish. Love is to say, hey listen, I don't know that you know that you did this, maybe you do, maybe we just need to talk about it, but you were a total jerk about this. Or I saw how you were handling me earlier, man, that really hurt. I would love for you to at least speak to that a little bit. What do you think? That's an act of love. That's an act of love towards them. When they repent, that is something that God smiles upon, but it is also an action that allows you to forgive. Unless that happens, that will always be the person that hurt you, but never asked for forgiveness or never repented. And that's on you, friends. They might not even know that they did something. That's on you, not on them. You need to bring it to them. This is forgiveness. That requires its own series of sermons, right? I gave a shotgun blast in one direction just to say it's not the same thing as reconciliation. That's over here. Reconciliation has a more simple definition. That is basically where enemies become friends. That's not forgiveness, but it is a part. Now listen, forgiveness carries us to friendship, but forgiveness is not Friendship right? Reconciliation is where, hey, we were throwing rocks at each other, metaphorically, or maybe not. We were hurting each other, but now we're breaking bread together. We're reconciled. We are friends together, right? Very different. Now, reconciliation, it cannot occur without forgiveness. You cannot become friends without forgiveness, right? But hear me, forgiveness can occur without total reconciliation. This is where I need you to listen up. Forgiveness can occur without total reconciliation because trust is necessary in friendship. Trust is required for there to be good reconciliation and that might take a while to reestablish and in some cases it might not happen in this lifetime. It might not, it might, it might not. This would be the case in rape or sexual abuse or child abuse. Pretend you have kids, you're at Thanksgiving dinner, You find out through one of your kids a year later that Uncle Bob did something to your kid that Uncle Bob should not have done. Listen, you're a child of God, and you have done worse. So you forgive Uncle Bob. That's upon you. That's a hard ask, but that's that's upon us. But do you go back the next Thanksgiving and let your kids play with Uncle Bob? No. No. Sometimes sometimes a total reconciliation might not be had. Maybe not for a long time. In some cases, might not ever. Maybe the kids grow up. Little Bill and and little Susie, they grow up, and they're in their 30s and their 40s, and and they go and they they reestablish a connection with Uncle Bob, and they forgive Uncle Bob for what Uncle Bob did. And maybe they develop a friendship over time. That might happen, but you can't demand those little kids reconcile. As a Christian, you can say you need to forgive, but you cannot demand instant, immediate reconciliation. I've seen churches try to mediate, navigate this, and require reconciliation, and they mess things up big time. I've seen them do it. What they'll do is they'll take a victim of some sort of a sin, and they'll make them do life on life with the sinner, and they just re-victimize the victim all over again repeatedly. Stupid. Sometimes someone will need to find a new job because of this. Sometimes someone will need to find a new church because of this. Sometimes reconciliation can be had in this lifetime, this year, this month. Sometimes normal might be a long way off, if ever. You see, several years ago, I walked a couple families through something very similar to this, and one of the people came back with something I've heard several times, and you might even be thinking it now. But Luke, Jesus reconciled with us, and we've done worse with him. We were enemies to God, and he made us friends. Would it not be logical that we're supposed to reconcile with everybody? That's true. Jesus did make enemies friends, but we didn't demand that of him, did we? See, that's the abuser that is driving the speed and the tempo on that. Not the, or the abused, not the abuser, I said it backward. It's not the abuser that says, I've hurt you, I've damaged you significantly, maybe irreparably in this lifetime, but you must be my friend, things must be normal between us. That's not up to that person. It's the abused person that does that. Reconciliation is the decision of the abused, not the abuser. We can expect forgiveness, we can expect that but not always immediate reconciliation. As I said, I've heard of extraordinary cases where maybe a child who was abused by parents have a beautiful relationship with their parents later on. I've heard and seen stories where a wife who was beaten but later on her husband gets radically born again and they have this beautiful marriage in the latter years. I've seen those incredible stories, you have too, and they're an incredible display of the gospel, aren't they? They're beautiful to see how grace was extended and how forgiveness really had wheels to it. But that reconciliation was chosen by the one who was abused in those cases. Think of your stories, you'd see the same thing. I hope I'm making sense. When we hurt each other, and we will, own it, confess it, repent from it, forgive, and then pray. Pray that over time a trust and a friendship can come about or return, and this might take a time, and again, it might not happen. Now listen, I'm giving you extreme cases right now, obviously. I mean, the statistics and the examples I've given, they're of a sexual abuse nature or a rape nature. These are very, very extreme cases, 99% of our collisions with each other are more like the Corinthian blend of just being donkeys all the time, right? Mistreating each other, hurting, hating, failing, betraying. These are the things that we do with each other. And even in those cases, look at the old commandments the world carries of love each other and the new commandment that God gives us that is cross-informed love. Look at the difference. The world is quick to extinguish even those minor collisions, aren't they? I don't like the way that guy looked at me not texting back ever again you're done that person hurt my feelings they didn't invite me to that party I'm not ever going to invite them to any of my parties you see how reciprocal it can get this love extended you did me wrong I will not pick up your calls you did me wrong I will not be your friend you did me wrong I will not be your husband I will not be your wife That's the world's way, the world. the Knoxville, it traffics in this much weaker love, a love that wouldn't die for them, a love that won't cross the room to them. Love is a transactional feeling for so many. It's conditional for so many. But Knoxville watches you, church. Knoxville watches you and how you love those in this room and how you love those outside of this room, the other 84%. Knoxville's watching that. And if it sees a love that is informed by the cross, it will say, that's new. That's something that's new. Something I'm not used to seeing. I'm gonna throw this in just as a last minute missional application. We've talked about a communal application, but just the world. Listen, don't be so afraid to let the world in to see how you deal with these collisions with people. Don't choke them out. Let them in. Sometimes I feel like we need to insulate people outside of the church. We need to feel like we need to insulate them so that they don't see that we damage each other and we hurt each other and we bang into each other. We feel like we're, we're protecting God's image by making it look like we, we always get along. I think that's a misfire. I think what really shows the gospel is when they see how we navigate through that total train wreck. So whenever you're sitting with someone at work or sitting with someone that you grew up with, it's really, really far from Jesus and, and and you're struggling with this thing and maybe they could see it on your face or maybe it's just top of the line awareness for you and, and they want to talk with you about it don't go oh it's nothing I, I forgive them come on do you let them see how you're struggling with it you know I want to forgive them but I'm struggling because I'm struggling to let go of the control I'm, I'm struggling because I feel like they're going to hurt me again I'm struggling because it's going to require so much work for me now. Every time I let them see that, let them see it, bring them into it. It's the gospel enacted. It's the gospel on display right before them. Why would we want to insulate them from that? Just so that we could look like we're polished and we're, we're not a mess. They know you're a mess. All right, I threw that in. I'll tell you, well, go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to read this last line with you, and then I'm going to pray for you. Because there was also a time where a woman who was steeped in sin, and she was unlovely, she took a lot of money, something very valuable, and she threw it at her king's feet. And when people balked at it, Jesus says this in Luke 7, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, which are many, which are many. I mean, he said that. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. I want you to consider this new commandment, and what it means. This new commandment. Because we have committed many offenses. And even in this room, we could, we'd lose count on, on fingers and toes, how many people have damaged us and how many people we have damaged Slight to large. And I was telling my wife the other day, I woke up in the middle of the night. It's odd, this doesn't ever happen. I mean, rarely do I have a a, a moment where I feel like the Lord wakes me up or the Lord gives me a dream. I do believe in that wholeheartedly. It just doesn't happen to me, but just maybe a handful of times in my life. But the other day I woke up and all I could think of was just names and faces. Boom, 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 boom. And the one thing that tied them all together is how I had this great tension with all of them like like something that needed to be forgiven or, or where they, they needed to forgive me or I needed to forgive them or, or there was some sort of a disunity, a, a, just a disjunction between us. And I got up and I wrote them down the next morning at 19. 19 people that have wronged me, that I need to forgive. This is the thing. This new commandment makes it easy. This cross-shaped love This cross-informed love that God has crossed the room to me. He's come to me. I am the misbehaving loser in the room. I am that guy. And what he did is he washed me, not just my feet, but my whole soul, making it possible for me to easily I don't need those people. I don't need people to love me. I don't have to force and demand that people think of me a certain way or, or give me certain love back and forgiveness for me to forgive them. I could give love out as a gift and not a transaction. It doesn't have to be conditional. So as I pray, I want you to consider the name and the face of the person that I'd asked you to imagine before we started this whole thing. The first one that came right up Maybe multiple ones came up to you, right? Maybe a people group, something. I want you to consider this new commandment. Is it possible to just forgive them or maybe start the process of forgiving them, which might take a long time? Is reconciliation even in the picture? Do you need help mediating a reconciliation like that? I think you really ought to start asking these questions because we're about to worship one who reconciled with us. (laughs) We're about to reconcile a great reconciliation, or we're about to worship a great reconciliation effort from God towards us, the very unlovely. So when we take communion, broken bread, spilt wine, the, the images, a body ripped apart and a blood let out as we do that, think in your mind, enemies have been made into friends. Maybe it's someone in this room that you need to pull aside during a time of communion and song where you say, hey, listen, You've hurt me, or I feel like I've hurt you. I feel like we need to talk about it. Maybe later, but but we need to start that process. Communion, beautiful time for that. It's a perfect time for that. Let me pray for you. Father, you were so good to us. It was a street I would not cross. You crossed it because I wouldn't. I didn't ask for you to. I didn't think I wanted you to. I've tried to earn it ever since. I've dropped it, mishandled it. But your voyage from the triune God, from all glory, to come here to live with us, to wash our feet, to wash our souls, to serve us, to love us, and then to give us a new commandment, Father. How glorious you are. How glorious you are in this moment. How glorious you are in this moment called the gospel. You're so good to us. And as we worship you, and as we pray, these, these names running around the Rolodex of unforgiveness or damage, this Rolodex of people who have hurt us, that we just cannot forgive. We cannot give that new commandment to. We can't extend that kind of love to them because they've not given it to us. Or maybe it's someone that we're close to and they just keep failing us over and over and over again. Lord, that you would give us a resilience and a perseverance because we fail you over and over again, and you knew it before you washed us. You're so good to us. Speak to us kindly in this time, Father, as we worship you, worship you in communion, as we worship you in giving our finances, as we worship you in singing and in fellowship and reconciliation and forgiveness even this morning. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to guide us, to give us courage and to give us wisdom. You're so kind. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.